Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, as we begin, uh, Brad had mentioned it's uh, time for sign-up small groups. Let me encourage you, especially, uh, we've got a, a class called Essentials. Uh, it's Essentials of the Christian Faith. If, if you're not sure how to um, feed yourself from the Word, how to walk with God on your own, if you don't feel like you're really grounded in some of the fundamental doctrines of the faith, this is a great, uh, great course to take. It you know, teaches things like how to pray, how to study the Word, uh, eternal security, uh, really fundamental things to get you grounded. This is important. You know, we come together as a body of Christ and we worship together. Um, why we don't cancel too many Sundays. This is an important part of the body of Christ, but it's really critical as believers in Christ that we know how to feed ourselves daily. It's also critical that we know how to pass that along to others. So if you feel like you know how to feed yourself, but you're not sure, how do I get somebody else grounded in the faith? You can also take this essentials class. My, one of my visions for our church is that if somebody walked up on a Sunday morning and this does happen frequently and they say, I heard the gospel this morning. I believed, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I received eternal life today. My vision is that I could turn to any one of you and say, this is a brand new believer in Jesus Christ. Will you disciple him? Will you disciple her? Will you get this person grounded in their faith so they know how to feed themselves and they also could join you in a matter of weeks or months right up here and disciple another believer. That's really what builds the body of Christ. Christ had only one program for getting the gospel to all nations, and it was spiritual multiplication or discipleship. So uh, Essentials is a great opportunity to really get grounded. Every single believer in Christ should know how to do, how to work through that process. Okay? All right, let's get started. I want to tell you an illustration to start with. Happened in 1950, 60 years ago, August 8th, 1950. It's a woman named Florence Chadwick who set a world record by crossing the English Channel. She swam across it in 13 hours and 20 minutes. A year later, she went the other direction from England to France and became the first woman to cross it in both directions. A year after that, 1952, she became the first woman to attempt to swim from Catalina Island to the shore of California. It's 26 miles. So when she got in the water... Uh, She was surrounded by a a small flotilla of boats, and they were protecting her from sharks and giving her water and food as she swam. And she swam, and she swam, and she swam. After 15 hours, a thick fog rolled in, and she began to become discouraged. And she was getting fatigued, and she wanted to get out of the water. Her mother was in one of the boats, and she kept encouraging her, Florence, you can do this. Stay in the water. You've come so far, it can't be far off now. And she was encouraging her and exhorting her. And so Florence kept swimming and swimming. Finally, though, she, she just became discouraged. And she climbed out of the water, got into a boat, and the fog began to clear a little bit. And she saw the coastline one mile away. One month later, she got back in the water. And she began to swim again. The fog rolled in. But she kept swimming and she kept swimming. And she crossed it 26 miles from Catalina Island to the shore of California. Later, she was interviewed and asked, why was it that you were able to stay in the water and and finish this time, even though the fog rolled in and you couldn't see? She said, well, I, I constantly kept in front of me a mental image of the shoreline. So even though I couldn't see it with my eyes, I could see it in my mind. And I knew that it was there and I knew I was getting closer. And you and I can endure Anything in this life, as long as we can keep that mental image 
of what Jesus Christ has in store for us. First Peter chapter one, I, I love this little section of scripture. I memorized it because we all go through trials. And what Peter does in this section is he praises these believers for not just enduring in the midst of trials, but actually rejoicing. I want you to read with me chapter 1. We're going to read verses 6 through 12. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Read verse 6 with me again. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Uh, Peter uses an extremely rare word for joy in verse 6. It's a compound word that means to rejoice exceedingly, to rejoice greatly. It is exactly the same vocabulary that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Peter was sitting there at Jesus' feet as he taught. And he picked up the same idea, the same terminology. Matthew chapter 5, beginning of Jesus' sermon, he wrote this. Blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and rejoice exceedingly, it says literally, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, same context. When you are in the midst of suffering and people are insulting you and persecuting you and slandering you and they're taking your property and they're taking your physical health, they're taking your life, Jesus says, rejoice and then rejoice exceedingly. Peter says the same thing. You're in the midst of trials of all sorts. Rejoice exceedingly. Have they lost their minds? (laughs) Are Jesus and Peter exhorting us to a response that is absolutely unnatural? Maybe. Inappropriate? No. I want you to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, and notice what he says. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter And Jesus are not ignoring the pain of trials. Peter says, you have been distressed. And he's talking about, uh, this word means severe mental or physical or emotional torment. You have been distressed. Peter's not saying ignore the trial. And Jesus is not saying ignore it or pretend that it doesn't exist. He's saying look through the fog. And see something that is greater. See what God is doing in your life and through your life. 
Live your life according to faith, and the result will be joy. James exhorts the same thing when he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Joy is what results when we choose in our minds to live according to faith and not according to sight. And what Peter will say here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-12, is that this is not only possible for the believer, it's actually necessary. It's not only possible, but it's actually necessary. Look again, chapter 1, verse 6. He writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary. Even though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been distressed by various trials. Why is it necessary? Uh, That's actually, in Greek, a first-class conditional statement, which is uh, important for you to know. It means, uh, actually, since it is necessary. And Peter's going to give us three reasons why it's necessary. First, joy in suffering reveals our faith. Joy in suffering reveals our faith. Believers in Jesus Christ shine particularly bright in the darkness of suffering. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, since it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, and that word means to demonstrate the genuineness of. Peter's not saying if you lack joy in trials, you're not a believer, but he's saying this is the way that we demonstrate to the world that we are living according to faith and not according to sight. It is our response to trials. When they see joy in our lives, when everyone else is becoming frustrated and angry and bitter and depressed, we instead have joy. That's how we demonstrate faith to the world. And that's going to be a really important theme for Peter. I want you to turn to chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 Peter. He writes, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The world is watching, Peter says. And when you choose to live excellent or beautifully, sometimes the world will reject you and persecute you. Sometimes they'll accept you. But on the day of visitation, when Jesus Christ is revealed in all of his glory, they will have to acknowledge, you were right. You lived according to faith and not according to sight. Our response to trials is how we demonstrate our faith to the world. Apart from trials existing in our lives, how will they see our faith? Uh, Yesterday, uh, a friend of ours um, gave football tickets to me and my son Benjamin. So we went with him to the football game. And um, it was a great game, especially the very end of the first half. And the rest. And, uh, you know, sometimes my, as I'm watching the game, my mind just, I wander, I just kind of wander. I was just imagining a, a conversation between uh, Gerard Johnson and Coach Sherman. Now, this, con- this didn't happen. I didn't hear anything. I'm just imagining what might have happened, okay? So I imagine Gerard coming off the field on the sidelines uh, after a rough set of downs. And I imagine him saying, Coach, these guys from Louisiana Tech, every time I go back for a pass, they keep putting their hands up. I can't see downfield. I can't see who I'm supposed to pass to. Obviously, you know, it didn't take place, but I'm just imagining. My mind goes crazy places. And I imagine him going on, Coach, not only that, but sometimes they bust through our line. It doesn't happen very often, but they, sometimes they come through our line and they, they tackle me really hard and it hurts. Coach, would you tell that other coach to make them stop? 
Now, some of you probably have met Coach Sherman. Imagine his response. <laughs> Wouldn't be good, right? Gerard, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? There are 80,000 people sitting in the stands. And the reason they came, is they, they came to watch Louisiana Tech put their hands in your face and you'd make a great pass anyway. And they came to watch those guys sometimes bust through the line and, and you do a great move and get past them and run downfield or you to make a great pass anyway and maybe sometimes get tackled and get tackled really hard and then get up and do a great job on the next play. That's, that's why they came. That's why you're the starter. Now get back on the field and stop complaining. That conversation didn't take place. But sometimes that's how our conversations go with the Lord. Lord, Satan's attacking me. The world is against me. Make him stop. And what does God say? So that's why you're the starting quarterback. Okay? In your arena, the people around you who are watching you, there is no backup. There's just you. And they are watching you. And particularly, they are watching your response to difficult circumstances. Will you respond just like everybody else in the world responds? Or will you respond according to faith, not according to sight? That's why you're here. That's why God has not rescued the church out of the world. In this world, you will suffer persecution, Jesus said to his disciples. But don't worry, I've overcome the world. But can you look past the fog? I, I'm going to come back. I'm going to return. Remember, this whole section is about salvation. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice. What's he talking about? Salvation. And at the very end of the section, what's he talking about? The salvation that's been revealed to you. The prophets long to understand. What are we writing about? The Spirit's speaking and we're writing. But we don't completely understand. Even the angels want to understand. Well, now we live in this privileged under, uh, time in which he's not talking about simply getting into heaven, but he's, uh, he's talking about living a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called, living well, living beautiful in front of the world which is watching so that one day they will honor and glorify Jesus Christ because of our responses. And if we don't go through trials, we don't have an opportunity to get on the field and shine. And you know, it's not just the world that's watching. Every time I, I hit a passage like this, I can't help but think back to Job chapter 1. Because it is a, it's a unique insight into what's happening in our lives and what's happening in the life of every believer throughout the world right now. Where the veil of heaven is, is pulled back and we look into the throne room of God. And there's the angelic host surrounding God. Holy angels and fallen angels. Even Satan himself, and they're giving a report. They are accountable to God. And God addresses Satan in particular, and he says, Have you considered my servant Job? Have you been watching Job? Have you watched him? Have you watched the way that he worships me? And then Job says, Yeah, but that's because he doesn't suffer at all. And so then God lets him suffer. Man, that's tough to wrap your mind around, isn't it? God doesn't cause the suffering. But God says, go ahead. But don't take his life. And Job suffers. And all of the angelic hosts watch. As Job moves through that process, 
and never curses God. And in the end, he's worshiping God. And that church is one of the primary reasons why we exist on the earth. Okay? So that men and women would see us, and they'd see our response to trials, and they'd be drawn to Christ. So the angelic host, the demons would be shut up, and the holy angels would praise. Because of our supernatural response, where we look through our trials, not ignoring them or pretending they don't exist, but we look through our trials and we praise God. Let me give you one illustration of this in the book of Acts. Keep your finger here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 22. Paul and Silas have just been preaching the gospel in Philippi, and uh, on the whole, it really hasn't gone well. There wasn't a real receptive audience there. Few people believed, but uh, it was a rough crowd. Chapter, 20, chapter 16, verse 22, it says, The crowd rose up together against them. The chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I've never been beaten with rods. I can, I can imagine. Hey, these are sticks across their backs. The robes have been torn off, so they're mostly naked. At midnight, they're not sleeping. Why? Because they are in extreme pain. Rods across the back. They probably have broken ribs. They have bruises everywhere. They're cold because they're sitting in the inner prison. They probably haven't been fed. They've had nothing to drink. And what do they do? Hey, you remember that hymn? Let's sing that one together. And they begin to sing. Can they ignore their suffering? No, because every breath they take, it hurts. It hurts to sing. But they sing. And what happens as they're singing? It says the other prisoners are listening. They can't ignore this response. Some probably thought these guys are absolutely crazy. They're out of their heads. They're delirious. But others said, man, that's not what I did when I got in here. (laughs) Things came out of my mouth, but it wasn't a hymn. What is it that's different? How are these men different? Why are they different? I, I need to know. That's why God allows believers to suffer. That's why he allows us to suffer. That's the first reason. Second, joy and suffering refines our faith. Joy and suffering refines our faith. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. So let's read verse 6 again together. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. Okay, you're looking beyond. In this salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time that you don't fully have, that moment when you move from faith to sight, And all that you've longed for is fulfilled. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, since it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter means something very specific by faith here. He's not talking about that initial moment of faith by which we believe and 
receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He's talking about the life of faith or the walk of faith. He defines it in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Uh, This is faith. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you're not even seeing him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice. You're living not according to what you see, but the unseen reality. You're living according to your love and devotion for Jesus Christ, whom you've never seen. And remember, Peter has seen Jesus. He lived three years with Jesus. He saw Jesus die and he saw Jesus after the resurrection. And then he he ate with Jesus and he held Jesus and he listened to Jesus. But he's writing to these people who've never seen Jesus and he's praising them because though you have not seen him, you love him. You're living according to faith. That's the definition. Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We live according to our convictions. They, they dominate our emotions and our choices in life. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Paul describes it like this in Romans chapter 8. He says, in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen or realized is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And in Romans 8, remember Paul is talking specifically about trials and suffering. Trials and suffering. Faith is looking through those circumstances, beyond them, to something greater. Faith is choosing not to be controlled by the moment. Whether it is running from suffering or pursuing a pleasure, you choose not to live just in the moment. Notice he says here in 1 Peter, since it is necessary, you have been distressed for a little while. Just for a little while. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that Chip read earlier, these are momentary light afflictions. Let's put that in perspective. What was it that Paul suffered? Very similar to Peter, right? Rods across his back. Actually, it was stone one time. You get a mental image of that. Standing alone and everyone picks up stones and throws them. Hitting you everywhere, all over. Paul's stoning was so bad that they couldn't actually tell that he was alive. There wasn't even enough breath coming out of him. They drug him out of town because they thought he was dead. Times when he was hungry, he had absolutely nothing to eat. And he really wanted to eat something, but there was nothing available. He was thirsty. There was nothing to drink. He was shipwrecked. He was sleepless. He was imprisoned. Paul says, momentary, light. Compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I can put up with that. It's momentary, it's light. Look at me back in verse 6 again, 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while since it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter and James actually use uh, exactly the same terminology, various trials. That's what James talks about, James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That word could uh, mean, uh, literally could mean multicolored. What James and Peter are talking about is not suffering because we sin, 
Peter's going to get into that later. He's saying, don't waste your life and suffer because of sin. That's a waste. What Peter's talking about primarily is suffering because we've identified closely with Jesus Christ. But then he throws in this little word various or multicolored to expand the conversation and say, what I'm talking about really encompasses all of the trials and suffering that you can undergo in this life, whether it's identification with Jesus Christ or whether it is some of the suffering we go through because we live in this broken and fallen world. And things wear out and things grow old and diseases come. Paul says the outer man is wasting away. You college students, you know, you're, you're at the peak physically. Enjoy that. You know what happens if you're at the peak? That means everything from here, downhill, okay? It starts to wear out. It breaks and it doesn't heal. It breaks and it, it, it just, nothing mends like it used to. The outer man is wasting away. Paul says, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. Why? Because he's looking past the momentary light affliction to the eternal weight of glory that lies beyond and that renews the perspective so that he can endure and actually rejoice in the midst of a trial. And so Peter says, your faith is like gold. James, same analogy, your faith is like gold. In what sense? Well, first of all, it's valuable. Gold was the most valuable commodity they could imagine. So Peter says, your faith is like gold. It's valuable. But remember, gold perishes. Same word he used just in the previous paragraph. The inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ is imperishable. And so often we give our entire lives to things that perish. It says, no, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven because that's imperishable. Faith that has been refined, that has been purified is imperishable. It's more valuable actually than gold, but how it becomes valuable is when it is purified. Just like gold, it must be purified. And the more that it's purified, the more valuable it becomes. That's true of gold, it's true of your faith. And the way that God purifies or matures your faith is through trials. Trials are necessary to purify our faith. I've gone through some trials with friends who've come right to the the edge of death. They're looking at it. And it's a very possible reality in the near future. And when that happens, uh, it's it's like the the fire (laughs) refining the gold. You know, the the dross comes to the top and it's scraped off. The things that are perishable get scraped off. They get set aside. And my friends have begun to focus on the things that are actually imperishable. And priorities get realigned. Time is realigned. Devotions and loves and affections, those are realigned. To just focus, because this time is so very short on earth, on the things that really matter and really last. And God must bring trials into our lives to do that. Are they pleasant? Oh, man, no, not at all. And so we don't want to fool ourselves and say, yeah, it's okay, I don't mind at all. No, they're distressing. They're distressing. When uh, our children were little, we used to have to bring them in every few months for shots, uh, vaccinations. And um, around our house, there's this... um, this concept of we 
you know, we need to do certain things, like every once in a while I'll come up, you know, we need to take the trash out, which I understand is me, right? It's, it's the, we, the we that's me, and I, and I got that. So we need to take trash out, I need to I go take the trash out. Uh, we need to have vaccinations for the kids. I understand what that means is I, I always got the short straw on vaccinations, which is okay. My wife gets other short straws uh, in, our, in our marriage, but that's one of my short straws. I'm the vaccination guy. I'm, Daddy's the vaccination taker, which is a terrible gig, right? So I'm, I, I, you load up your kids, and when they're babies, um, you, you carry them in there, and that, there are more vaccinations early on, and they don't, they don't understand. They can't understand. But you take them in there, and you get their leg is bared, or both legs are bared, and there's something just intuitive, even in a three-month-old, that when the, the cover comes off the needle, that, that can't be good. You know, there's just something, it's, you know, they begin to squirm. And then when there's a little alcohol rubbed on those thighs and it's kind of cold and it's, oh, I don't have felt that before. So this, something's not right here. You know, I, daddy's holding me, but it's not good. It's not good. You know, and so they're squirming around and we have a great nurse, Vanessa. You know, I, if you don't have kids yet, college students, you don't know, but sometimes when you go in for vaccinations, they'll do like four at a time. Okay, four needles. It's, it's intense. So four needles laying there, Right. And you're holding your child. And Vanessa's amazing. She's awesome. She, she, she just, okay, we got him ready. Boom, 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 boom. It's like, wow, we're out. And it really, I swear, every time she's done that, four shots. Ah! I mean, she gets four shots in before the first scream. It's like, you know, shock. Boom, boom, boom. Ah! And... You know, Ben and Joy, they looked at Vanessa like, who, you know, this horrible woman, what did she do to me? And then they look at Dad and it's like, oh, you betrayed me. <laughs> it's, it's horrible. Now, <laughs> when they were babies, they had no perspective. Until three months old, you need this vaccination, you see, because in the future you could be exposed to this certain disease and it could kill you. So the reason we're doing this is really for your benefit, and you're going to thank me for it. No perspective whatsoever, right? As our children have gotten older, they still don't like shots. Um, they'll actually tell us on you know a trip to the doctor. By the way, Daddy, I don't like shots. <laughs> Got it. No shots today. It's okay. Why is mommy not in the car? It's okay. <laughs> trust me but they don't like them right but they do now have an understanding of the value and the necessity they understand because they've matured in our walk with Jesus Christ sometimes we scream and we yell and we cry out and we look at God as if he has betrayed us And then as we mature, we don't like trials anymore. But we look at God and say, "Ah, I I trust you. I may not understand exactly why I have to have this trial, this shot, this pain. But you've proven yourself trustworthy. And so we not just endure, but we rejoice. That is absolutely supernatural. I've heard many times sermons preached where people will say, you know, it's okay to be angry at God. You know, to which I respond, well, to a point. Because sometimes a trial comes into our life and it's, a, you know, just the knee-jerk response where 
God, what are you doing? And we're confused and disoriented and frustrated and maybe angry. Job is crying out to God, God, what in the world are you doing? But if you notice, Job progresses. He doesn't stay at that point. He moves forward even though God never explains why was this allowed? At the end of the book, what is Job doing? God, I worship you. I trust you. Even though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Even though he brings various trials that I can't understand, yet I will trust in him. And if we are bitter and angry with God and angry with the people around us and frustrated and we become unforgiving, that's evidence that we're not walking according to faith, but according to sight. Notice how how Peter wraps this back into joy. Verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. This is the definition of walking according to faith. Though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He uses a word here for inexpressible that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's really, really rare. As if Peter is searching for the right word, he says, I can't really even explain it. It can't be explained until you experience it. But when you look past the trial to the one that you don't see, but you love and you trust, you will experience joy. That will be the result. And so when we have joy in our lives, that's evidence that God is maturing our faith. When we're bitter and angry and frustrated and we can't move past it, it's evidence that we're living right for the moment. And when we are experiencing a trial and we try to escape the trial and we run to whatever, some relationship we shouldn't be in or alcohol or drugs or whatever we escape with, that's evidence that God, we are not allowing God to mature our faith When we're living according to this perspective that reaches beyond, we experience joy. And the world sees that. The world sees that. And so God must bring trials into our lives to purify our faith. Third, joy in the midst of suffering results in reward. So read with me again verse 7. He says, the proof of your faith... Okay, the outer demonstration of your faith, your trust in God, it's more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it is tested by fire. It may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, when we have joy in suffering, praise and glory and honor go to Jesus Christ, but they also come back to us. And that's what he's talking about here in verses 6 through 9. Sharing in the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Peter's going to talk a lot more about this. We're going to get into this a lot more later in the book. But uh, I just want to point out at this, at this juncture that this is a huge theme for First Peter. If you want to write a little title even on the top of this book, it's Suffering Then Glory. Suffering Then Glory. Suffering First Then Glory. It was the pattern in Jesus Christ's life. It's going to be the pattern in your life if you identify with Christ. Suffering, then glory. Notice verse 11, chapter 1. He says, seeking to know what person, that is the prophets, were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow after that. It's a really significant theme for Peter. Suffering, then glory. Jesus Christ suffered first, and then he experienced glory. 
there was a part of him that didn't want to go to the cross. Right? Father, cause this cup to pass from me. It was intense, sweat coming down like drops of blood. But he chose to go through the suffering. He could have avoided the suffering. Remember, he reminded his disciples, don't you realize I have legions of angels at my disposal who can wipe out the enemy. But he chose to go through the suffering. And God raised him from the dead, indicating that he had approved the sacrifice of Christ for us. That's the gospel. Jesus died and he was raised up to pay for our sins. And when we believe that, we enter into an imperishable relationship with God through Christ. All you have to do is say, God, thank you. I believe. And when you believe, you can begin to identify in all areas of your life with Jesus Christ. Where is he now? He's at the right hand of the Father. And he's receiving praise. And honor and glory, blessing and dominion, power, may it all be yours, be yours, Jesus. 24 hours of every day, praise is being heaped upon Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. We get a little glimpse into this scene in the throne room of God again. Chapter 19 of Revelation in verse 5, the last book in your, of the Bible. This is how the story ends. It says, A voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. Okay, same term. Let us rejoice and let us rejoice exceedingly and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And who is the bride? That's us. And we are standing there and we are joining in this praise and we are honoring and glorifying Jesus Christ. And we are rejoicing because we've been living for that day. So we're rejoicing and rejoicing exceedingly. And we're not fixing our minds on the momentary light afflictions, but instead on that eternal weight of glory, which is far beyond all comparison to what we experience now. And when we choose to have that joy in the midst of suffering and we honor Christ with our lives, we're told that Jesus turns around and he shares that glory with us. We're going to talk a lot about what that means when we hit chapter four. But let me just illustrate it for you. Have you ever been to a symphony and it's done particularly well? At the end of that symphony, a really powerful piece, everybody just busts up. They just have to stand up. It's just spontaneous and clap and clap and clap and the conductor turns and receives praise, right? Because he's the one who has orchestrated everything. He takes his bow, and then what does the conductor do? He turns to that first chair violin and bids that man or woman stand. First chair receives praise. And then what does the first chair do? Turns and has each section over the orchestra stand, take a bow. For those of us who have chosen to walk according to faith and not according to sight, someday we'll stand in the presence of the Lord and all praise and glory will be directed to him and then he will turn and he will say, stand. Well done. And we will share in the honor and the glory 
of Jesus Christ. And Peter tells us, do you realize what privileged times you live in? That you can see all that. That you can understand all that. And so you don't have to waste your life or be confused about your purpose. But no matter what you go through, whether it is a blessing from God circumstantially or it is a trial, you know that God is working in your life and he's working through your life. He's even working beyond your life in these present circumstances. And to the degree that you reflect a life of faith, not sight, you will share in the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Rejoice and rejoice exceedingly in that. Changes your whole perspective on the world. So as we close, I want you to um, take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit just to, to search inside of your own heart. Do you experience joy in the midst of suffering? And if not, why not? Hey, what has captivated your heart? Why is it that you're living in the moment? And ask God to come in and, and, and purify that and give you a vision for what lies beyond. The moment when we stand before Jesus Christ and he turns to share his glory with us. Hey, let's take a few moments before the Lord and then let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that this perspective would rule our hearts and our minds. I pray that it would rule over the choices that we make and the things that we feel. I pray that we would learn to look beyond our circumstances to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I pray, Father, that if there's any suffering that any of us will go through this semester, that you will allow in our lives that we would shine very brightly in that darkness. I pray, Father, that you would draw men and women to your son, Jesus Christ, this semester through this body of believers. I pray that we would live for things that are imperishable and endure and not for the moment. Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ has made that possible for us, that we live in these extremely privileged times where we see what many prophets and angels long to see but couldn't see. And now we know this is why we're here. This is why we exist. And your son, Jesus Christ, has purchased this opportunity for us through his blood. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.